This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmore Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. What you're about to hear is a powerful story that originally aired in August of 2017. The message is so important that I plan to continue re-releasing this episode annually until every brew kettle in America has boilover protection. If you know of someone who doesn't have boilover protection installed on their kettle, please send them a link to this episode. And stay tuned till the end for some big news from Carrie. And I was 66% chance to not survive. So ultimately I was had a 34% chance to live. Today on the show, a remarkable woman tells how she beat the odds to survive a terrible accident in the brewery. You'll also hear from another guest who describes an inexpensive way to prevent that same accident from happening to you. Today, I'm joined by two very special guests who actually don't know each other, but their combined message is an important one that every brewer worldwide should hear loud and clear. Carrie, let's start with you. Why don't you introduce yourself to listeners? Hi, my name is Carrie Caldwell, and I am a brewer currently working at Mother Earth Brewing Company in Nampa, Idaho. And Carrie, how, how long have you been brewing? I have been brewing for seven years now. Sounds crazy. You've worked at a few different um, breweries, I think mostly in, in Idaho, right? Yeah, I started brewing in uh, Southern California. I worked at Belmont Brewing Company in Long Beach and their sister brewery, Bonaventure Brewing Company in Los Angeles. And I took a job up here in Boise at Table Rock Brew Pub, which is now out of business. Um, after Table Rock, I went to Edge Brewing Company, where I was the head brewer. Okay. Uh, Carrie, July 10th, 2015 changed your life forever. Why don't you tell us about what you remember from that day? How did it start? 
it really started like any other day. Um, I actually have some pictures on my phone. I had just taken some pictures of my assistant as he was graining in. Um, we were making my favorite beer, double IPA, um, called Obligatory. And the day was kind of going off without a hitch. I mean, I've made beer a million times. And basically, my assistant had to, the way the brew kettle and the brew stand was set up at edge, in order to clean out the mash tun, someone had to climb into the mash tun to take the grates out because they were screwed down in the back. So every day someone had to climb in the mash tun. And during that time, I'm always very cautious because nobody wants to have an accident happen at the brewery. And with the mash rakes, I was always, I always watched when my assistant was in the mash tun because I was afraid that there would be some freak accident and the rakes would turn on and, you know, he would get chopped into a million pieces, which probably sounds dramatic, but. You worry about those things when you're the head brewer. It's a healthy fear. Yeah. And, you know, I think it was, he was in there and I had, I was, he had my hose because he was spraying out inside of the mash tun and I had just put in, I believe it was my start of boil hops, but the details are a little foggy at this point. Um, and I turned my back to the kettle to make sure that he was doing okay because it's a 15-barrel brewery, so I can see the kettle and the mash tun just from one spot, just rotating left or right. And the kettle started to boil over, and I he had my sprayer, so I couldn't spray it down. And, you know, it, it all happened so fast, the kettle started to boil over and I, it splashed me and I panicked and I slammed the lid of the kettle shut because it was starting to boil over a lot and I didn't have a way to spray it down. What I should have done in hindsight is just hit the power button and shut the kettle off. But as a brewer, I'm thinking like, what can I do to save the batch of beer? If I turn off the kettle, you know, it could mess something, mess the beer up. So and what happened when I shut the lid on the kettle was it just increased the pressure in the kettle and it started spraying out worse instead of better. You know, like if you put a lid on a boiling pot of water, the steam in the boiling water starts spraying out worse. And so basically I just, I got covered in boiling wort and I leapt off of the brew stand um, Instead of, again, instead of turning it off or, and it, it does all happen so fast, I just jumped off the brew stand and I was screaming. My assistant was inside the mash tun, so he didn't know what was going on and he's trying to get out of the mash tun. Um, I remember like just <laughs> the brewery, it has some glass doors where you can see into the brewery from the brew pub and it was, you know, lunch rush. And I just started peeling off my clothes. So I, just because they're hot, they're covered in wart. And I was yelling at my assistant to hose me down. I remember just saying like, hose me down, hose me down, hose me down. Um, and so that was your first in instinct to get cold water on, on yourself as quickly as possible, right? Yeah, just, I mean, you know, if I was to splash 
hot water on myself in my kitchen. I would run my, you know, put some cold water, run it under cold water. And that was just what I thought. It was just like, get this hot, you know, it's sticky liquid. It's got pop chunks, pop chunks in it. And it's sugar. It was a double IPA. So it's, you know, pretty, pretty sticky at that point. And uh, he said, you know, he's spraying me off and he's like, we need to call 911. I'm like, we don't need to call 911. I'm fine. I just need to cool off adrenaline and everything else is pumping. I was going to ask you that, you know, because some people who experience trauma, they don't immediately comprehend the extent of their injuries. So uh, it, it sounds like you didn't really under, you didn't really realize the severity of the situation right away. Well, right. And just like a scald burn is when it first burns you, it just looks pink. You know, like if you burn yourself with a firecracker, your skin is charred. It looks burned. But if you, you know, splash hot water on yourself, it's pink. And then maybe an hour later, it's got a blister. And then, you know, another couple of days go by and the blister pops. Like a scald burn is a slow building burn. So it's like the difference between boiling a hot dog and cooking one on a stick. You can't really tell when it's done, you know? And so I didn't think it was that bad. And I, and I looked down and I could see that the skin was kind of starting to fall off of my arm. And I realized like, okay, maybe we should go to the hospital, but don't call 911. You guys can just take me to the hospital. And the owner was there and his little girl was there who at that point, like, totally idolized me. She's five years old and all she wanted to do was be a brewer like me. And she came into the brewery, like right as, right as this was happening, I was like, get Avery out of here. <laughs> Anyways, I think they had called the hospital and let them know we were coming. Cause I remember there was someone outside with a wheelchair, but maybe it's just that in the emergency area, there's just someone waiting with a wheelchair for this kind of thing. The accountant at Edge drove me to the hospital, and I remember in the car ride, the hospital is there's pretty close to Edge. I believe it's maybe a mile and a half, but it's through sort of right where the mall is, so there's lots of intersections and lots of cars, so it felt like it took forever, and I remember I was doing what I can only, you know, I've never had a child, but what I would consider like Lamaze breathing, like like breathe, breathe, breathe. And then I would scream and then breathe, breathe, breathe and scream, just trying to like control the pain. Cause at that point, I think my adrenaline had worn off a little bit and I was starting to really feel the pain. And they wheeled me into the emergency room and it's packed in there. Cause you know, emergency rooms are always packed, but, and they wheeled me just straight back into a room. Like they didn't check me in or anything. They were just like, we need to get her in a room. They, cut my clothes off of me and gave me some narcotic of some sort. I'm not sure which one at that point. Uh, my parents had been called and my husband at the time, um, he's now my ex-husband, but they had been called and they were, they got to the hospital shortly after I did. I think my assistant had called my husband and my husband had called my parents. and. They got me sedated and said that, you know, the burns didn't look too bad because at that point, again, it just kind of looked like a sunburn. It was just red. 
and said that they thought that they'd probably have to hold me overnight. Um, but they were going to send some pictures to the burn unit and see what the burn trauma center had to say about the pictures. So they had this iPad and they were taking pictures of me. And within a few minutes, it went from, well, we'll probably have to keep you overnight to keep an eye on you to like, we're going to put you on a life flight and get you to Salt Lake City immediately. Wow. What, wow. Was, what was that ride like? Um, I took a couple pictures outside the window. It was an airplane because a helicopter can't fly all the way from Boise to Salt Lake City. I guess it's too far of a flight for the life flight helicopters. So they had me on a little plane and I was, I mean, at that point I was completely sedated, like with narcotics, not passed out. And I, I remember asking the, the nurse or the, I don't know what the right word is, so I apologize, but the paramedic or the paramedic on the, on the life flight if i could take pictures so yeah i took a couple pictures out the window and it said it's probably the only time i'll ever have my own personal airplane so <laughs> you know. and it, it was a little scary because i know as someone who's seen life flight helicopters flying in and out of hospitals the first thing i think of when i see a life flight is oh my god that person's gonna die you know, yeah. like you don't like, and so I thought like, how bad is this? Like, it doesn't look that bad, but they're life flighting. They didn't put me in a car, tell me that I need to go somewhere. Um, and I got to the hospital and they put me in the burn unit. And when I first got there, even in the burn trauma intensive care unit, which is where I spent um, 35 days, ultimately, when I first got there, they even told me that they thought I'd only be there about 10 days. And as they started, you know, if the first 10 days in a, a scald burn, they're basically, we would just do wound care every day. So twice a day they would come in and completely scrub me down to try to get off whatever skin was dying. Sorry if this is kind of gross. But, and they... Very painful. At that point, they have you on like fentanyl, which is an incredibly powerful narcotic, um, allotted oxy, like a cocktail of all three, which I didn't realize you could take that many narcotics and not die. But as long as someone's monitoring your, monitoring your breathing, they'll, they'll dope you up as much as they possibly can for wound care. Um, Carrie, I... I read an article where you were quoted as saying, keeping me comfortable was keeping me from not screaming. You, you also yeah. said that you could hear the screaming from the other rooms in the burn unit during the routine bandage changes. What got you through that absolutely horrible experience? Um, well, having my parents and my husband, they, they took turns spending time with me. Um, my parents are retired. My dad is a full-time caretaker for my mom who has early onset Alzheimer's. So um, they were able to, I mean, that's a terrible thing in itself, but because of that, they were able to be there the whole time. And I would have them put music on Spotify. There's a, the whole room had built-in speakers, so you could just plug your phone into the wall and listen to music. And I would put on I would have my dad, I would just pick a song and have my dad put a station on and I would 
listen to music and try to sing along while they did wound care, um, which is the most, the best that you can do in those situations. Like there's no amount of painkillers they can give you that will make the pain completely go away. It can just make you not think about it so much. Um, And definitely there's a couple of children in there and they're definitely the ones who are doing the, the screaming during wound care. You could tell when it was wound care for there's a toddler in there in one of the rooms, there was a little boy in one of the rooms. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely not, not an ideal situation, but the university of Utah, um, burn trauma intensive care unit is one of the highest rated in the country. And they're amazing. They did a fantastic job. Uh, but yeah, as they would do my wound care, they would scrub off the skin as it was dying off. And it basically turned out they first, at first they thought it was just first and second degree burns, but ultimately it was second, third, and fourth degree burns. And after the 10 days was up, they decided they were going to do a skin graft surgery because some of my wounds were just so deep that it had gone all the way through the skin. At that point, because they, again, they can't tell until the skin completely dies and it comes off. They don't know the depth of the burns. Um, so I had to have seven skin grafts, which I remember signing the, the NDA or whatever it is. The, D- or the DNR. Not DNR, yeah. And I, I remember they made me sign this thing and I'm like, I don't. I don't understand why I'm signing this. Am I going to die? Like if this, you know, the whole thing just felt so overwhelming that, and it, at that point, they don't tell you, they're trying to keep you positive. So they're not telling you the worst. They're telling you the best. Uh, so anyways, I had the skin graft surgery. And then after that, it's a little bit of a slower recovery. I was lucky. Um, a lot of people that have skin grafts end up getting infections or the skin grafts don't take. There's a lot of complications that can come up. Keloid scarring um, causes the skin grafts to pull and they don't set right. I mean, and my skin graft surgery went off completely without a hitch. I never had an infection. I never had, I haven't, I mean, eventually in 10 or 20 years, I might have to have them redone because I, they sometimes break down over time, but right now they're doing really good. And my scarring is quite minimal. A lot of people, it just kind of looks like freckles or a birthmark or something. So I, whatever genetics I was blessed with, I don't scar terribly badly. You mentioned that, um, you mentioned that, you know, you had this kind of ongoing sense that your life might still be at risk. 30% of your body was covered in severe burns and not everybody survives that. Why don't you tell listeners what the odds are? So they didn't tell me what the odds were until checkout. They came into the room and said they wanted to go over some numbers with me. And I'm like, I thought they were going to talk to me about medical bills. (laughs) Like, Oh my God, I, I don't want to talk about this right now. So they came in, but what they really talked about was the, your odds of recovery. And I was 33 or 34% um, second, third and fourth degree. 
Um, they don't count your first degree in that. So whatever parts of me were more lightly burned didn't get counted in that. And also the skin, the site that they they harvested skin off of one of my legs to put it in all the spots that needed to be grafted. So they don't count the giant open wound that they leave on your body as part of your uh, total burn um, amount. But the way they calculate your mortality rate is your age plus your amount burned. And I was 66% chance to not survive. So ultimately I was had a 34% chance to live. Wow. And wow. when they told me that, I was like completely blown away. Like I never expected it to be that bad. I thought it was like 25 at the most. Like that I that I would die, not live. Like I didn't, I didn't realize it was that bad. And I remember just like, I'm really glad they don't tell you that when you first get there, because it could be very disheartening and probably hinder your attitude while you're in there. You know, I could, my dad says that, you know, he talks about when we talk about it, he says that I was really inspiring. You know, when we would go to physical therapy, they would tell me to do like five squats. Or whatever, and I would always do seven. Like I would always push myself to. Just, I wanted to get out of there, you know. And if they told me when I first got there that I had a thirty-four percent chance to live, I might not have tried so hard, you know. So I think it's good that they wait, but it's pretty devastating to finally hear it at the end. the The recovery process must have been very long, and I don't know. Maybe you'd say that you're still recovering. How long did the pain last, and when did you finally start to feel like yourself again? I was out of work for five months, um, which is a really long time for a head brewer to not be in a brewery. And the pain, I think I probably, the worst of the pain was probably the first six to nine months. Um, I started weaning myself off of the narcotic painkillers when I started feeling them. Because when you're taking, when you have severe amounts of pain and you're taking narcotics, like I don't remember ever really feeling high in the hospital. You know what I mean? I never felt loopy. I just it was it was what took the edge off, so you could feel normal. And when I would be at home, I as soon as I would start to notice, like oh, I feel kind of loopy. I would back off my narcotics because a lot of people were like, oh, you're still on narcotics. I could see the look in their eye like, oh, you're going to be hooked on these things, aren't you? Like, no, no. Trust me, I only take what I need to take. Um, But uh, right now, I just had my two-year anniversary last week. And I have the only spots that I still currently have pain in are areas that they're, they call hyperesthesia, which is um, my nerves are still growing back in some areas. And the nerves are hypersensitive because they haven't been trained yet. So there's spots where if you just like touch me, it feels like you're stabbing me. But there's no, I don't have all the time pain. Um, and I do have some spots that have no sensation at all. It's like Novocaine. I can just poke my hip and I feel nothing. Um, so there's, you know, 
but no, for me, there's no long-term pain. I know there are a lot of people who suffer from more severe nerve pain, um, scar tissue that is heavy scar tissue can have a lot of pain spots. So I've been very, very lucky um, physically in the long run. But for me, the hardest part is the PTSD that I have. So I still, um, I am not a anxious person by nature. I'm really laid back, but I am now, I take Zoloft every day. I have two different Xanax prescriptions. Um, I have, my entire emotional capacity is diminished uh it's hard for me to work one of the reasons i no longer work at edge is it was just too hard for me to continue to be in the place where it happened i love making beer it's what i it's what i love to do it's it's the luckiest job in the world as far as i'm concerned but even still to this day there's days where i wonder if this is a job that i can do for the rest of my life sorry i'm starting to Carrie, you are one tough lady. You've, you've, you've really, um, it's, it's remarkable how you've bounced back from this. Thank you. And most of the time I feel really good, but yeah, there's just, especially, um, they told me when I left the hospital that your burn anniversary, which is what they coined it. That's not my term. Um, <laughs> would be hard, would be hard every year. And I, at first I was just thinking like, once I get out of here, I am never looking back. Like, that was my attitude, but it's, it's true every year, my anxiety, like it's only, I'm only two years in, so it might get better ultimately, but you know, I have been kind of a disaster. Uh, my body is, they, they said that your body has like a biological clock in it and that that biological clock remembers the time of year that this happened and i'm definitely you know at a very heightened sense of that fight or flight you know i yeah. the other day i was just terrified for no reason and i told my boyfriend he's like what is wrong right now I'm like i'm just i'm scared and he goes what are you afraid of and i was like i'm not afraid of anything i just I'm filled with terror, like waking up from a bad dream and your heart is racing and you can't breathe that terror. That's, you know, that that's where my long-term like healing is at is um, I, I have to see a therapist regularly. So for me, the emotional scars are much worse than my physical scars. Um, and everyone is different. There's people that I know that are some of the happiest, best people I know our burn survivors, I was lucky enough to go to World Burn Congress last year and meet thousands of burn survivors, and some of them are completely disfigured by scars, but they have the best attitudes, and I feel like I am completely the opposite of that. <laughs> I almost have no scarring, or very little visible scarring. Most of my scarring is on my torso, where you don't see it, and, but I'm just an emotional disaster. Coming up, an easy, affordable way to make sure an accident like this never happens to you. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas.
Support for this podcast is brought to you by... ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by... Brewery Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingaman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingaman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingaman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. And thank you also to... Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. From large and small breweries to homebrewers, we've provided the beer industry with the best fermentation yeast since 2003. The yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch Fermentus yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentus can improve the quality of your fermentation, visit Fermentus.com. As you might imagine, there still aren't any opportunities to gather in person for district meetings, but that doesn't slow us down. After all, Master Brewers, which was formed in 1887, has survived more than one pandemic. Spring and summer have brought us numerous webinars and virtual district meetings, many of which can be replayed on demand. Here are just a few of them. Creating a safe environment for brewery tours, June 9th. Compliance testing for state-level cannabis markets, June 23rd. The Connected Brewer leveraging real-time fermentation monitoring to elevate product quality and operational efficiency July 14th. You've heard me talking about the 2020 World Brewing Congress for several months now. As I've mentioned, it's my favorite industry conference. I've been looking forward to it since the 2016 WBC ended. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we won't be able to gather in Minneapolis as planned. As much as that stinks, there is a pretty serious silver lining. WBC 2020 is going fully virtual, which means you can access the world's most cutting-edge research in brewing science and technology easily and affordably from the comfort of your own home. Registration for WBC Connect opens soon with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details or check the direct link in the show notes. The District Texas Annual Summer Meeting in Kerrville is August 7th through the 9th. The Master Brewers Brewery Systems Technology and Maintenance course begins September 13th in Madison. The District Northwest Fall Meeting is scheduled for October 9th and 10th. The Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course is October 25th through November 6th in Madison. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. back to the show. Carrie, one of the reasons, uh, really the main reason the three of us wanted to get together here today to tell your story is uh, to prevent an accident like this from happening to other brewers. And we've also got my friend Scott Zetterstrom here with us today. Hi, Scott. Are you still there? Yeah, I still am. So Scott has designed, built, 
decommissioned and moved lots of breweries over the last two decades. He's an engineer and a practical brewer through and through. He's the kind of guy I have on speed dial for whenever there's a difficult rigging job or I need someone to custom build an automated keg washer complete with touchscreen controls for me. Scott, you've been in the industry a long time, and I'm sure you've seen your share of accidents and near misses. What's it like to hear Carrie's story? It's it's very, very moving and very... Uh touching and emotional uh and i can't imagine what you had to go through carrie that's just uh it's incomprehensible you know we've all had minor little burns here and there and then to magnify that is just i can't even imagine what that what that's like i started working at old dominion brewing company in 2004 scott we didn't overlap but you had worked there together with john mallet in the 90s and you became the brewmaster at Dominion. I'm I'm not sure what year that was. Do you remember? Uh, no, 96, 97, 98, somewhere around there. Yeah. So Dominion was the third brewery uh, that I, I worked in, but it was the first place I encountered boilover protection. And looking back through the Master Brewers Technical Quarterly archives, I see that Mallet actually wrote a paper in 1997 called Brewery Configuration for craft brewing optimization. And that paper actually included a section about boilover protection. Scott, do you remember when that sensor was put in the kettle at Dominion or what I need to ask Mallet about that? Well, actually, we put that in when we added the new kettle. So that was something that we requested from, uh, from uh, uh, let's see, that kettle was, I can't remember that kettle was a JV or a Century, actually. Um, it might have been a century kettle. I think it was. And, uh, yeah, we uh, we requested it at that time, and uh, they they provided us materials to do that. Um, they didn't in, they didn't install it. We had to install it, um, but it was something that that they put together the the pieces for. I think that early one was a conductivity probe, actually. Okay, and and when I heard about Carrie's injury uh, two years ago, I asked Scott to write a white paper about boilover protection. Uh, again, so we could help prevent accidents like this from happening at other breweries. Thank you for doing that, by the way. Um, listeners can find Scott's paper in the brewery safety section at mbaa.com or simply by typing boil over with a hyphen into the search bar. Also, none of the brewery safety content is restricted to members at mbaa.com, so anyone can access this document. Scott, you've installed at least a couple of boilover sensors for me in the past. Could you please take a minute to explain just how simple and inexpensive it is to put one of these devices on a brew kettle? Uh, certainly. And basically, all we're doing is putting in a switch that senses the level of the material in the kettle. So when you have a boilover, you get a foam pile that forms on top of the liquid, and then it builds and builds and builds until at some point it, it, it comes out of the kettle. Uh, we put a sensor in that will sense that foam pile before it gets to the door and turns the steam off. Um, there are different types of sensors that you can use. Currently, I'm using a capacitive type sensor, sensitive, uh, sensor which uh, seems to work very well. The sensitivity is correct, and they, and they tend to auto-tune very well. So um, basically, it's just simply a level switch uh, that turns the steam off when you or the burner off when the boil gets to uh, to a certain height um, the installation involves uh, welding in a fitting at the top of the kettle uh, the units that I use have triclover fitting so we weld a triclover fitting at the top of the kettle 
and then wiring it into your steam control system. Uh, obviously, if you have a completely manual system, you would need to add a steam control valve of some type, either a motorized control valve or solenoid valve. But if you have a semi-automated system or a system that has already uh, automated steam control, um, then it's simply wiring it in, and that can be very straightforward. Um, even on PLC systems, it's not a complicated addition. So, you know, usually 2500 for a system that has valves and somewhere under $4,000 for a system that needs to have valves installed, uh, and you could provide this protection. Um, it's certainly, you know, to have a, a situation, you know, that Carrie had uh, to be able to prevent that, I, I don't know how you would how you would not think about doing it um but even uh, even just the monetary costs of of losing wort on a regular basis that was one of the things that drove us we certainly never had any kind of horrible accident like carrie had but uh you know losing wort out the door on a regular basis um you know it adds up quite quickly sure um yeah that's a pretty small price to pay in the grand scheme of things when you're talking about you know probably spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on on brewing equipment in most cases um where Scott, where should a, bre a brewer go to to get one of these devices? Well, I suppose uh, you know the brands that I use. Uh, 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 I don't know if you want me to plug the unit that I use. Yeah, but, that's, um, that's no problem. I mean, we want to help people figure out how to how to put one of these things on if they need help. Yeah, I mean the the unit that I'm currently using is the is a Dwyer unit. It's a capacitive level sensor. If you go to the Dwyer uh, Dwyer Instruments website. Um, that's D-W-Y-E-R-instrument.com. Um, you'll look and you'll see they have various different level switches. There's all kinds of level switches. Uh, the capacitive one is the one we use. Um, you can use conductivity switches. I use those uh, generally in, in straight liquid environments like a hot liquor tank or cold liquor tank or CIP system, something like that. Um, they can be used to, to, to find the foam pile, but many times they need to be adapted a little bit. Uh, to get in the sensitivity range that you need to determine foam versus air. So um, without a lot of false tripping. So that's why we've moved to the capacitive ones. Okay, great. And I'm sure listeners can also get in touch with you if they want help or even start a discussion thread on Ask the Brewmasters and we can um, connect people to the right resources if, if they need help um, installing something like this. Now, I had a, just a quick uh, question, I guess, Carrie. And in, 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 in many in this brewery, I'm assuming, uh, you know, the controls to turn things on and off the burner, et cetera, were on one side, and, then, and the stairway to, to get off the platform was probably on the opposite side of that, right? So yes. the kettle door was spewing hot fluid in between any, you know, trying to get either turn off or get the heck out of there. Yes. Right. So, and, 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 and that's the situation in most breweries because, you know, the controls need to be accessible and the platform isn't very big and you have to have access, but the controls can't block the access. So typically... Situation. Whereas if you have a boil over, you are not going to be able to get to the controls to turn things off. And that's true in almost every, every small brewery. Um, so it produces a very dangerous situation. Sure does. When I got burned, they had to wait till the kettle boiled down enough that it was no longer boiling over before they could get up on the brew stand to do anything. Because wow. once wow. it's boiling over, there's nothing you can do. You can't. I mean, no one's going to climb back up there when there's just foam flying out onto the brew deck. So, it's definitely very true. Carrie, do you have any idea how, how OSHA reacted to the accident uh, that caused your injuries? I, I assume they must have done a, 
a site visit right away, but you, of course, would have still been in the burn unit. Yes, they did do um, a site unit uh, walkthrough. Um, OSHA, after their investigation, um, they, I believe, they interviewed me while I was still, I think I'd been out of the hospital like one day and it was a phone interview because I was still in Salt Lake City. And I'm sure they talked to my assistant, but there's not that many people in the small brewery. So there's not a lot of witnesses. And what they ultimately deemed was that my injury was an accident. It was not not the fault of faulty equipment or uh, faulty usage, just a true accident. Um, But they did find multiple other issues while they were there. And that tends to happen. Yeah. And so there was a. I believe it was around $5,000 in OSHA uh, fines for various other things they found in the brewery that were wrong. (laughs) So while they didn't find anything wrong with the brew kettle specifically, um, they aren't really the people that you want to have poking around in a brewery. Like now in every brewery I go in, I look around and I'm like, that's an OSHA violation. That's an OSHA violation because I know them all now. So once again, boilover protection is cheaper than an OSHA visit. It sure is. The article I mentioned earlier by John Mallett was written 18 years prior to Kerry's accident. And while he's a very smart and innovative guy, I'm guessing Mallett wasn't the world's first brewer to install boilover protection. So after more than 20 years of easy access to these simple, inexpensive devices and recent horror stories like Kerry's, I'd like to hear what both of you think about the lack of acceptance of these devices. Why isn't boilover protection installed on every commercial brew kettle in America? Shouldn't these things be standard on new brew houses like airbags and cars? Uh, I absolutely think they should be standard equipment. Um, and equating it to an airbag on a car is a really good uh, example. I don't understand why they don't. I think. When a lot of breweries, when they start up, they don't necessarily have a lot of money and a $4,000 price tag could mean the difference between opening a brewery and not opening a brewery for some people, which I'm not, I don't know that that's the financial situation that I would want to put myself in if I was opening a brewery where that was a decision I had to make. But I realize that that is a decision that a lot of people do have to make. You know, you're trying to open a business and it's like, well, we'll just be real careful, you know, Uh, and I think you can sort of, because bad boilovers are rare, thankfully, um, but so it's easy to just think like, well, you know, boilovers happen, but we can keep them under control. I don't know. I, but I do think that it should be standard, Um, but really I don't. I I don't know much about the the engineering and the mechanical side unfortunately. I just I just like to make the beer. Yeah. Um yeah, so basically unfortunately it's an option. Um people have the option of installing it or not. Uh certainly uh owners that are looking long term uh and and more conscientious certainly will install it. It is cheaper to install new in a new system rather than as an ad, but it isn't dramatically expensive to put it on as an ad. 
Um, and certainly systems that are direct fire, it's relatively easy to put on because the controls are st- very straightforward. That was Kerry Caldwell and Scott Zetterstrom here on the Master Brewers podcast. When I asked Carrie if she had any second thoughts about reliving her accident, she said she was happy to put herself through a little more emotional torture if that meant someone else could avoid going through it at all. Don't let Carrie's courage go to waste. If you know of someone who doesn't have boiler protection on their kettle, send them a link to this episode. You just might save a life. If you'd like to get more information about boilover protection, visit the Brewery Safety page under the Brewing Resources tab or type boilover into the search bar at mbaa.com. If you'd like to ask questions about boilover sensors or connect directly with Scott, you can do both at community.mbaa.com. And just a quick update on Carrie, she's had a big year. She became a mom. Her son Otto celebrates his first birthday in October. And Carrie's fifth anniversary is coming up very soon on July 10th, which seems like the perfect day not only to send Carrie kind words and prayers, but also to validate the boilover protection on your brew kettle or install boilover protection if you haven't already done so. 